Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Feels good to be back. Thank Mason, where's Mace? There he is. Thank you, man, for filling in the last two weeks. The, the Freemans had a much enjoyed time of rest and recharging, getting away for a few weeks and relaxing in the mountains and reconnecting with the Lord. And out of that, a lot of amazing things came out. One of them, which I'll, I'll share with everybody at some point, but the logo for the church. Um, he gave us a lot of really cool things the last couple of weeks while we were there praying and spending some time with the Lord. So it was amazing. It was a great time to, to be away. I, as I was praying on the way back on, God, what would you have us talk about? Or would you have me review the first time back up here after a couple of weeks? And we're obviously, we're starting Revelation 8, but he reminded me that we started Revelation on January the 17th of this year is when we started in the book. Since that time, and we have a ton of families out traveling, and, and obviously we prayed over Turner and his family and some people traveling out on the road, but we've been going through Revelation. We started in chapter 1, January the 17th, so we've been going through 21 weekends or 21 Sundays since then to get through chapter 7. So we've spent 21 weeks to get through a third of the book. So you can, you can do your math and figure out, all right, maybe we'll be finished by the time the rapture happens. But, but since that time, the church has almost quadrupled in size in terms of families and people watching online. And like Ryan said, we've got people in six or seven different countries watching and joining us now weekly. So what the Lord really impressed on my heart was, uh, Matt, you need to go back and just do a very high-level summary from chapter one to where we are and then start with the unsealing of the trumpets in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And so we're going to do that. So that's, Ryan mentioned how many slides. I was hoping nobody would notice until we just started getting into it, so nobody left early. But it's, we'll go fast. If you guys will stay with me, what we're going to do at the end, I have a very personal story to tell that links to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, about being still and knowing who is God and who is authority, who is our king, really, and something that he took me through um, in 2020. So it's going to be really good. If you guys will stay with me, just hang in there. Uh, it'll, you'll be very fruitful at the end, I promise. So with that, we'll get started on a quick recap of the book from where we've been from January 17th until now. I can't believe it's already been 21 weekends to get to this point. But Revelation, so it literally is the unveiling of who Jesus is, and we're continuing to study, in my opinion, the most incredible book of the Bible. When you think about the book of Revelation, it's not only the, the most misunderstood book, it's the most avoided book. Uh, I've, I've been to church my entire life, and I've never heard a single sermon taught out of the book of Revelation. As myself, as a kid, all the way through college and a young adult. 
So it's avoided. It's the most avoided book literally within the body of Christ, but it's also the most incredible. And really what it unpacks is who is Jesus for all eternity? Who is he? He's no longer this suffering servant that came to die for us and wash our feet. He is the ruling and conquering king with all authority. And it's who he is, the king of it all. And he will set his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then after that, the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. So who has the authority? This book answers that. It's Jesus. The one in which the world is accountable to. And it's the book which culminates all things. And literally it is everything we get to look forward to in Jesus is in this book. If you are in him, if you have a deep relationship with the Lord, this book unpacks your future. You know, kind of like I was reminded of this when we were planning our trip for a couple weeks to go out to Colorado. We did all kinds of planning, right? We looked at the maps. We tried to figure out the best route. We tried to figure out what do you do once you get there, make some reservations in advance. What are some good restaurants? Where do you need to go? Where's the best coffee? Uh, what about going up into the mountains? You know, all these things. Well, it's kind of the same thing for our trip home to our eternal home. This book is that map. This book is, tells you, what do you need to prepare for? What do you need to plan in advance for? What do you need to do with your life now to make sure that you are in the best position once you get there? That's what this book is all about. It's kind of the pre-planning for the trip home. So I just love that imagery. But the entire book is also about redemption. The whole book is about redemption. And when you realize that, it makes so much sense when you realize, okay, yes, there's a lot of crazy things going on that Hollywood has made movies about for, for decades now, but the whole book is about redemption. And it's probably, like I mentioned, the most avoided book in the church today. It's because in the 404 verses of this book, there are over 800 allusions to the Old Testament, which is why it sounds so foreign, because hardly anybody picks up the Old Testament to read it today and to study it. You know, it's all about grace and love and forgiveness, and yes, it is from Acts 2 on, but Jesus came to fulfill every single word in the Old Testament, in Psalms 40, verse 7. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, says Jesus. It's, the Old Testament closes with unfulfilled promises, prophecies yet to pass, an eternal reign for us to look toward, and here in this book, it's all fulfilled. So everything that the Old Testament closed with a promise of is fulfilled here in this book, which is amazing when you really think about it. And from all of this, it's also the most misunderstood book in the Bible. So it's the most avoided. It's also the most misunderstood. I cannot tell you how many people I hear say, well, I just don't want to read it because it doesn't make sense to me. And that is the greatest lie from the enemy to keep you out of God's word. In a book that has so much for you, it is the greatest lie. In fact, because you're going to see in a minute, it's the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing if you do read it. And so the enemy would have you think it's confusing, it's misunderstood, there's all these different ideas and concepts about what the book means, and there's these different views of prophecy. You know, who am I to read it and be an authority of it, right? But, as Ryan mentioned at the beginning, 1 John 2.27, you have the teacher. You have the authority. You have the author himself 
indwelling in you to teach you that book. And so don't, don't buy that lie from the enemy. The word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis. And it's from these two roots. And it literally means an uncovering or an unveiling. That's what the book means. And it's amazing to me uh, about how the world has such a negative connotation with the word apocalypse. And literally all it means is an unveiling. See, it's a disclosure of knowledge. Think of it as letting you see something for what it really is. And so the book really lets you see Jesus for who he really is as conquering king. That's what it's all about. So look how the book opens in chapter 1. So verses 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So look who gave this to Jesus. It's literally a gift from the Father to the Son. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. So it's a gift. This book is like a personal letter from the Father to the Son. And when you go back to Mark 13, it says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And so literally, it is something that for some reason in Mark 13, it was only in the counsel of the Father. The, the return of Jesus to rule and reign on earth was in his counsel alone, and this book is like the unveiling of it to the Son. It's like a gift to him, which is amazing when you think about it. It's a personal gift from the Lord. So, like I mentioned, it's interesting that the world has such a negative connotation with the word apocalypse. Even someone that knows absolutely nothing about the Bible thinks of the end of the world when they hear that, that word, right? I mean, you, you have all these movies made about it. You had the Left Behind series. You had uh, all the Avengers movies about the end of the world with all of a sudden a bunch of people disappearing suddenly. You know, where do they get those ideas? Those ideas come from the Bible. Now, of course, they twisted and put their own worldly spin on it, but the concept is there in the Bible. And yet, all it means is to unveil, and really, the world is terrified of who Jesus really is and the accountability that we all have to him. It's a personal accountability. It's not, do not let the enemy confuse you that we, as in the world, are accountable to Jesus. Indeed, we are, but it's not just we, it's you. It's you personally. You have a personal accountability to Jesus. What I have found in my whole life is that most of the people who reject the Lord, it's simply a flee from accountability. They don't want to admit that they are accountable for something they did. That's the bottom line. When you really boil it down as to why someone rejects the Lord, it's not because they don't think there could be a higher being or higher intelligence or a creator or anything like that. The bottom line is they are fleeing accountability. And we saw that even in chapter 6 in the book when the kings of the earth hide in caves and they cry for rocks to fall on them. They'd rather die than be accountable to Jesus. And you see that just in the subtlety of that, of that chapter. But it's also the most unique book in the Bible. 
It's the only book that promises a blessing in chapter 1, verse 3. Blesses he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So when you read it, you've got to keep it, which means bury it in your heart, hold it, hold on to God's word so it is your guidebook through this trip that we call life to our forever home. It's also the only book of the Bible that gives you an outline in verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter or meditata in the Greek. It's the only book of the Bible that details explicitly the future for us. And it calls itself prophecy, the words of this prophecy. And what I love is that the testimony of Jesus is prophecy from Revelation 19. We'll see that in a minute. So the supernatural outline, chapter 1 is the things which thou hast seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are, or the church age. There's seven letters to seven churches. Chapter 4 through 22 are all the things which are after the church age, hereafter, in verse 19 back there in chapter 1. So four things in this book are put back in order. The church will be back in our rightful home, which is heaven. Israel will be back in its rightful home, the land that God promised it, not the land they occupy today, the land that the Lord promised to Abram back in Genesis, from the river Nile until the river Euphrates. That's through Egypt all the way through the middle of Iraq. So when you look on a map today, they occupy this little bitty land that's about the tenth of the size of the state of Oklahoma, and the Lord has promised them over and over and over and over that Abraham's descendants would occupy this land. And we're going to see them take back that land. God is going to give it to them in this book. Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David, which is in Jerusalem. You know, right now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's not on his throne yet. But that promise was given by the angel Gabriel to Mary. Remember when she was pregnant, your son would sit on the throne of David. That's a ruling political throne from Jerusalem. All evil will be bound and ultimately cast into their rightful home, which is the lake of fire. The book is fully structured around the number seven. The number seven is what God does on behalf of man in a complete sense. And the very structure of the book is around seven groups of seven, which is amazing. So you have the seven churches, chapters two and three, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven personages, the seven vials or bowls, the seven dooms and seven new things. So you have all these sevens that the book is around. In fact, the entire book is full of sevens. I don't think you could make a list, of all, a comprehensive list of all the sevens within the book of Revelation. There are seven lampstands, seven spirits, seven stars, seven lamps, seven title pairs, seven promises to the overcomer, chapters two and three, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven thousand, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven mountains, seven kings, seven years of judgment, seven IMs by Jesus, seven doxologies in heaven, and seven new things. That's just a, a quick list, but not all of them, I promise you. But the book is supernaturally orchestrated. And as you progress through it, the praise even increases exponentially to seven times. In chapter one, you had glory and dominion. Chapter four, glory, honor, and power. Chapter five, blessing, honor, glory, and power. Chapter seven, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Seven things. There are seven praise and worships. You have holy, 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 worthy art thou unto him that sitteth. 
salvation unto our God, kingdoms of the world, great and marvelous, and four hallelujahs. So there's seven praises and worships. Okay, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, the doulos. The doulos is literally a bond slave. So if you have enslaved yourself willingly to the Lord, this, is, this book is written to you. And not enslaved in a bad way, meaning you have chosen to be an indentured servant to his kingdom. That's what a bond slave means from the Old Testament. The bond slave, once you were set free after your years of service, you could choose to stay indentured to that household. And by doing so, you would go and they would pierce your ear against their doorpost. And you would wear an, an awl through your ear. And it was a sign of, it was a very high sign of regard that you were making the choice that you were a slave who was set free, but you're choosing to be under the leadership and authority of this household. That's what it was, and that's what we are. We've been set free, but if you are choosing to, a life, to live a life for Jesus, you're a doulos. You are under his authority, and that's literally what this book, who this book is written to. Okay, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw... When you go to Revelation 19, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, again, do not let the enemy try to convince you to not study prophecy. Because in Revelation 19, it's the testimony of Jesus. That's what prophecy is. And so if you want to know about him more and more and more, you study prophecy because it's all about him. That's what it all points to. And, of course, there's that blessing that we read about. In chapter 1, when you broke it down, there were 24 identifying characteristics of Jesus. And why that's interesting is you have 24 characteristics of the Lord in chapter 1, and when you get the unveiling of who he is, and when you get to chapters 2 and 3, the Lord picks, handpicks one of those characteristics or two or three of those to put into each letter to the seven churches, literally making up the body of Christ in those seven letters. And so why 24? Well, 24 is important because in Scripture, there are 24 intervals of time that imply the church. Okay, literally, in chapter 1, every title of Jesus was a title used of him that represented the church. And from chapter 4 on, we're going to see this, every title of Jesus is very Jewish. The word church, in fact, is never used again after chapter 3, verse 14. Because the church is gone. We're out of here. And so the 24 interval, intervals in Scripture, when you, when you realize the church was hidden in the Old Testament, it's revealed in Ephesians, then you go back and you read the Old Testament again, you realized, oh wow, the church was there, but it was hidden. And there's 24 intervals where it was hidden throughout the Bible that it's implied when you realize the prophetic outline of God's word. So 24 is a, it's an important number. In chapters 2 and 3, we had the seven letters to the seven churches. Um, each letter had seven elements to it. The name, the title of Jesus that's used, the commendation, the concern, the exhortation or counsel the Lord had for the church, the promise to the overcomer, and then the closing phrase. And when you map out that chart, and you lay out those seven elements, you realize, okay, there were two churches that had nothing good said about them, and there were two churches that had nothing bad said about them. And so even there's a structure there in how the Lord organized those letters. The closing phrase, 
is within the body of the letter in four of the letters, but it's after in the last three. And so even the structure of how God laid the outline of the, of the letter is deliberate. But you had the seven letters to seven churches, and frankly, we took one week on each of those uh, back earlier this year. Those are probably the most important two chapters of the book for us because we are the church, and it's, it's Jesus' personal penned letter to us, the church, and what we're supposed to know from it. So you had the personal application. Ephesus was neglecting priorities. Smyrna withstanding satanic opposition. Pergamos was avoiding spiritual compromise. Thyatira was not to let evil take root. Sardis was to remain faithful, ever watching for Jesus. Philadelphia was the open door for the missionary outreach. And Laodicea is avoiding uh, prosperous compromise. Application to all churches. Ephesus was prioritizing devotion, Smyrna enduring persecution, Pergamos to purify your ambassadorship, Thyatira to root out all pagan practices, Sardis to remain diligent in teaching God's word, Philadelphia is the open gateway for the gospel, and Laodicea is being on fire for the Lord and not relying on personal wealth. Okay, you had the seven letters line up also to the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. We went through these one by one. The sower was Ephesus, the tares and the wheat was Smyrna, the mustard seed was Pergamos, the woman and the leaven was Thyatira, the treasures in the field was Sardis, the pearl of great price, Philadelphia, and the dragnet was Laodicea. So when you go to Matthew 13, even the seven kingdom parables that Jesus taught lined up to each of those seven letters, which is incredible when you think about it. In fact, Paul wrote a bunch of letters. Uh, when you boil out, really I should say the Holy Spirit through Paul, when you boil out the letters he wrote to pastors and individuals, Paul wrote seven churches through the Holy Spirit. And when you look at how they line up, Ephesus obviously lines up to Ephesians, Smyrna, Philippians, Pergamos, Corinthians, Thyatira, Galatians, Sardis, Romans, Philadelphia, Thessalonians, and Laodicea, Colossians. And so even the churches that the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul line up to the seven letters that Jesus pens in chapters two and three. They also laid out, which, which is so amazing, and only we today can look back and have the hindsight to realize this, but the seven letters laid out the entire church history in advance. Jesus wrote them. They profile the church history from Acts 2 until it closes at the rapture. It profiles that entire history in advance. Ephesus profiles the apostolic church, Smyrna, the persecuted church. What, and then what Satan realized was, hey, I can't get rid of the church by persecuting it, so I'm going to get it to marry the world. And that's what he tried to do. That's when you got the whole, the laity and all of that started to come about, which was Pergamos, the church that marries the world. Thyatira is the medieval church. Sardis, the denominational reformed church. Philadelphia was the missionary church, and then Laodicea, the church age that we're in right now, the lukewarm apostate church. So chapter 3 closed after the seven letters of the seven churches, and then we got, we're getting raptured. So we're caught up in chapter 4, verse 1. And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. That's the trip home. That's the door home. That's that interdimensional gateway into where the Lord's throne is, opening up, and the Lord himself descending with a shout for his bride to come home. 
And that's what we have to look forward to. That is the blessed hope. That's what we as the church today have to look forward to more than any other time in church's history. Because every single day we're one step closer to the Lord calling us home. So after this, it refers to after these things, literally after the churches. Uh, At the end of the church age, that door will be open and we get to be taken home. Praise God, I cannot wait for that day. But until then, like Jesus said, occupy till I come. That's what he told us in Luke. So we've got to be about the Lord's business until he brings us home, the rapture. So where do you get the idea of the rapture? We, We spent a whole week diving in just into that one verse for the harpazo. That's the Greek word, the harpazo. It literally means to be snatched away or taken up by force. And it's derived, it appears in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where it's translated caught up. The Latin translation of this verse used the word rapturo, and that's where we get the word rapture. You know, you'll hear a lot of naysayers, or people that are critical of God's word, say, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible anywhere. That Where are you guys making this up? And in fact, it is if you have a Latin Bible, it's right here, it's rapturo. That's where we get the English word rapture. But the Greek word it translates as harpazo. And it, like I said, it means to snatch or take away by force. Elsewhere, it's used to describe how the Spirit caught up Philip near Gaza and brought him to Azotus. That's in Acts 8. It describes Paul's experience of being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. The same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It's used to indicate the actual removal of people from earth to heaven. And so we are admonished to save some people with fear, making sure that they are raptured out of the fire or judgment. That's in Jude 1, verse 23. And others save with fear, pulling, or harpazo, them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So you are to use... See, some people view, have a a great fear, right, of the end of the world and and the revelation of Jesus and who he is and the apocalypse, all these things. Well, you're supposed to save them with that fear, turn that on them, right? It's not a spirit of fear. The Lord does not give you a spirit of fear, but of sound mind. So you turn it by, hey, do you know there's a way out to escape from that, that the Lord would not appoint you to wrath? If all you have to do is be in him and be a part of the church, and you get to go home before it. Uh, in fact, there are seven raptures in the Bible. Enoch is raptured in Genesis 5 before the judgment. He's a type of the church. Elijah is raptured in 2 Kings 2. Jesus is raptured in Mark 16, Acts 1, Revelation 12. Philip we just mentioned in Acts 8. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and John in Revelation 4, verse 1. So even the time that raptures are modeled for us in God's word is the number seven, which is what God does on behalf of man, completeness for what God does on behalf of man. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, sorry, in verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself, this is Jesus, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be, there's the word, caught up, or harpazoed, rapturoed, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And look at the final as it closes. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, how comforting is it for someone to come and say, hey, hunker down, stock up on supplies, get your guns and ammo, you're getting ready to go into the worst time man has ever seen on planet Earth. You know, it's not that comforting, right? I mean, you're, most of us in here have small children, maybe we've got grandkids, whatever. It's not real comforting. But what is comforting is the promise of God's word, which is, hey, for my bride, you are not appointed to this. And 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. In Revelation 6, when Jesus is unsealing the scroll, the kings of the earth even describe it as, who can stand the wrath of the Lamb? God links those words on purpose to let you know what is happening in that time is the wrath of God. It is God, finally the sin has come to the full, and God must act and judge it. But before that, just like he did with Lot and his family, he must remove those that are his. Okay, what happened? Remember the angels with Lot? They said, hey, we have to take you out of here. because We can't rain down fire, hell, and brimstone until you and your family are gone. We have to get you out of here. And that's exactly what happens with the rapture. We have to go home first. It's a prerequisite. So, in Revelation 3.10, look at this promise from the Lord himself. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon only New York City. No, that's not what it says. All the world. It's all the world. This is a global event that's happening. And look what Jesus says. I will keep you from the very hour of it, not preserve you through it, not take care of you and make sure you have enough water, food, supplies, and medicine when you and your kids are hiding in a bunker somewhere. No, I will keep you from the time of. Because when we are taken, we are no longer time-bound. Right? That was the Einstein's theory of relativity, that time is a dimensional property that varies with mass, gravity, and acceleration. That doesn't happen in heaven. You are not subject to time. You are outside of time. That's why Jesus says and has the promise, I will keep you from the very hour of. And there's that, that verse in chapter 6. What is happening in Revelation 6? When Jesus starts to unlock the sealed scroll in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Well, we saw in chapter 7 a couple weeks ago, there were 144,000 sealed by Jesus himself. They're able to stand because they're sealed by God and preserved through the judgment. But those that are not appointed to wrath, from 1 Thessalonians earlier, 5, 9, we are taken out. We don't have to try to stand during it. We get to celebrate in heaven of being with our Lord during that time. So these promises are throughout Scripture. When we went into this in detail many months ago, uh, we walked through the rapture verses in the Old and New Testament. It's amazing. Go back and listen to that. If you are confused on the rapture, it's not from the Lord. Okay, confusion's only from the enemy. And so go back and go through that and search the scriptures yourself from Acts 17, 11. Search them yourself and find those things to be true. Go and find it. But in Titus 2, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope that we are to look for. 
If your eyes are fixed down here, they're not fixed up there looking for him. And the Lord does not want you rooted here. He wants you fixated up there because that is where your heavenly inheritance is, the blessed hope. So we talked a lot about this, but I, I, this is too good to pass up if you guys have never heard this. The Jewish wedding models the rapture for us as the church, okay? How many of you have been to a Jewish wedding? I have. One of my best friends from high school uh, had a Jewish wedding. I don't think he's watching, but Nathan, if you are, I love you, man, out there in Nashville. The Jewish wedding. Okay, you have the ketubah or the betrothal, the payment of a purchase price. The bride is then set apart. So what happens is the bridegroom comes to the father, makes an arrangement, right? A covenant is made between the, fa- the father and the bridegroom. The bride then comes forward and has to agree to that. There's the payment of the purchase price. The bride, once she agrees, is then set apart. Okay, she's sanctified. She has to be in her wedding attire from then on. She sleeps in it. She's in it day and night because she does not know when the bridegroom will come to grab her to have the wedding. Okay, and what happens is after that happens, the bridegroom departs to his father's house where he builds a room addition. And he goes and he builds onto his father's house the addition for him to bring his bride home. Okay, remember what Jesus said in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you, right? The promise to us as the church, and where I go, you will be with me. So he has gone to prepare a place for us for almost 2,000 years. Think about, you go out and you go, especially up in the mountains and in these beautiful parts of God's creation in the world, he spoke it into existence in six days. He has gone personally working as a carpenter, on something for 2,000 years for you. You know, just think about, you cannot imagine how glorious it is going to be. In fact, the thing on planet Earth that we hold in the highest esteem, gold, right? It's the most valuable metal on Earth. We just walk around on it in heaven. You know, just think about that. It's so, it's so worthless in heaven that we drive on it. You know, that's how different it's going to be. So he goes to prepare a room addition. And the bride, like I mentioned, does not know when he will return, sits in her, in her wedding dress, waiting to hear the bridegroom with the sound of a trumpet to get her, okay? And it's a surprise gathering, and then after that, you have what the Jews call the hoopah or the wedding. And so that is modeled for us in our relationship with the Lord. The covenant's established in 1 Corinthians 11. The purchase price was none other than the bridegroom himself, our King Jesus in 1 Corinthians 6. The bride is set apart. We are to be set apart from the world. We are not to be in it. You are to wear the garments that Jesus has for you in serving him, which is clothed in white raiment, not in those things of the world. And so you're to be set apart from Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 1, Hebrews 10. You're reminded of the covenant, 1 Corinthians 11. He left for his father's house in John 14, like I mentioned. And then when he comes back in 1 Thessalonians, there's an escort with him to gather his bride. And what's amazing, in the Jewish wedding, he would get all of his best friends and then come through the town. And it usually was under the cover of darkness at night. And they would blow these big shofars, these big trumpets. And then everybody would stand up and come out to meet the bridegroom and his party. And then they would put the bride on this platform 
and all of these guys would lift her up. And so literally the bride was caught up to the wedding, even in that. And so it's just amazing how Jesus, even in the very Jewish culture, has modeled the promise for the church in the greatest relationship you can imagine on earth, which is marriage. It's the, it's the most intimate relationship in how God has modeled our relationship with him. So that's pretty amazing. So we're caught up. In chapters 4 and 5, we had the, the throne room of the universe. And in the throne room, there was a sequence of events. And again, we're not appointed to wrath, but the 24 elders, the thrones are set around God's throne the 24 elders, we are looking for one who's worthy to come forward and take the scroll. Okay, we're looking for, it had to be a man. If you remember from chapters 4 and 5, it has to be a man to come forward and take the scroll out of the Father's hand, which is a type of Boaz in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. And we spent a lot of time going back through Ruth and how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He had to redeem it all on our behalf. He, that's why he had to become a man to begin with, was because a man forfeited all, a man had to buy it back. It's the law of redemption, the law of leverite marriage and redemption from the Old Testament. But Jesus comes in, you know, we're all there as the church, the 24 elders, we're sitting around, there, there are angels and cherubim around the throne, the rainbow around God's throne, and you can't even visualize it because it's not in three dimensions, you know, our whole lives where we live in three dimensions, and this is, you're talking about hyperspaces of more than three dimensions is where we are in heaven. And it is going to be amazing. You cannot even imagine it. I try a lot, believe me. And, and I have not, I don't even think I've scratched the surface on it. But you know, we're looking for a man to come forward. And when we get there, it's amazing. We look in three spots. We look in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And we spend a lot of time talking about why did we look in those three spots for a man who's worthy to come forward and take that title deed to the earth? Well, because in heaven is all the church at this point. On the earth are those trying to survive the tribulation, and we saw a lot of the tribulation saints during the seals. And then under the earth are still the Old Testament saints waiting to be resurrected when Jesus steps foot on earth. So there are men still in three spots at this time. And even in God's Word, it describes that. But the 24 elders, you know, the interesting part is it, the number 24 is important because of the 24 identifying characteristics of Jesus and the 24 intervals in Scripture that detail the church. And so the 24 elders, even in the number, God gives you a hint of who they are. But they tell you who they are. They're kings and priests, and that's us, 1 Peter 2.9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Okay, there are only three groups of people in the entire Bible that are kings and priests. Melchizedek, who is a foreshadowing or type of Jesus in Genesis. He was a king and a priest of Salem or Jerusalem, okay, before it was called Jerusalem. Jesus was a king and a priest, and then the church. We are a royal priesthood. We are kings and priests. All through the Old Testament, remember the kings had to come from Judah, priests from Levi, and they were to be separate. Well, Jesus turned that law on its head and combines the roles once again. And that's what we get to enjoy as the church. It's one of the great privileges, in fact, that we get to enjoy as the church because the Holy Spirit indwells us as kings and priests. In the Old Testament, it would come and go. Remember uh, David prayed, take thy spirit not from me, because the Holy Spirit would come down, talk to them, 
show them things and dwell on you for a minute, and then it would leave. Well, that's what Jesus said. I must go so the comforter can come. Well, the comforter must leave so Jesus can come. The reverse is true. Uh, he had to leave to send the Holy Spirit. He's got to remove the Holy Spirit so that he can come back. And that's us as the church, the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the lamb comes forward as it's slain. From chapter 4 on, every title of Jesus is Jewish. He's no longer thought of in the terms of the church because the church age is closed. In chapter 4, it's the lamb that had been slain. It's the root of David. There's all these titles of Jesus from the Old Testament. In Revelation 5, verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he, Jesus, came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Remember, we were looking for one to come forward, and it took the one that was slain as a lamb to have the authority to come forward. And we talked a lot about, when we went through this in a lot of detail, it happened to be on Passover Sunday, which was amazing how God timed out the messages to, to study the Passover when we were celebrating it as the church in Revelation 5, when he comes forward as our Passover lamb, all the way back from Exodus, which was just incredible. So again, the word church is not used from that point on, from chapter 3, verse 14. So after he took the scroll, he starts to unseal it. And we are singing praises to him, and we spent one week each of the six seals in Revelation chapter 6. We had We've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, or vials. So Jesus went through. The first seal was the white horse. Second seal was the red horse. And we took two weeks on that one, actually, to study wars prophetically in the Bible that have not yet come to pass. The third seal was the black horse, or famine. The fourth seal was the pale horse. Then the fifth seal was martyrs. And the sixth seal was total anarchy. And then the way the structure is in the Bible you have six of something, then a break, where God tells you something else that's going on during that time period. Then you have the seventh unlocks the next seven. So the Jews called a heptatic structure. Then we had six trumpets. We'll have six trumpets. Then the break is four chapters, 10 through 14. And then the seventh trumpet unlocks the seven bowls. And then the break after six bowls is just one verse where Jesus gives us a message. So like I mentioned, first seal is the white horse. Red horse was wars. Uh, the white horse was the false messiah, right? He was the antichrist coming forward. He does not come forward until Jesus allows him to come forward. And he doesn't allow him until, again, he takes the scroll. He doesn't take the scroll until we're in heaven looking for him to take the scroll. So the black horse, then the green horse, martyrs, and then anarchy. So we went through all of that. Uh, the ceiling of the 144,000 was in chapter 7. And we looked at the 12 tribes of Israel that were listed and if you remember, there was a special hidden message even in those why the Lord didn't mention Dan in those 12 tribes, and he also didn't mention Ephraim, uh, which was pretty amazing. So 24 elders, that's us. We're crowned, harps, no palms, kept out of the tribulation. We sit on thrones. We reign as kings and priests. The tribulation saints that we saw as the fifth seal and who we see in chapter 7 they're not crowned. They have palms in their hands. They're saved out of tribulation, not out of the time of. 
They stand before the throne, they serve God day and night in his temple, and they're not recognized by John. So the point we were going through a lot in that was making sure that you differentiate between tribulation saints and the church. There's a big difference in how God describes those two group of people. Okay, so that was a quick high level of where we've been in 21 weeks, and we spent a lot of time going through the book verse by verse to get there. But if, you, if you're interested, you want to go back and hear and get caught up in those messages, pun fully intended, then go back and listen and grab our YouTube or Vimeo channel, which I still don't know how to text to people. Uh, Ryan will help me out with that at some point. But it brings us to chapter 8, and I want to cover the first two verses of chapter 8 because there is something so personal here that I went through in 2020 that I just want to share with all of you a little bit. And it ties directly into the founding of New City Church. But when you get to chapter 8, so we had the parentheses, the break in chapter 7, where the 144,000 are sealed. Okay, and then the break is over, and Jesus comes to the seventh seal on the scroll. And remember, that scroll was written within and on the back side, which is a type and a model from the book of Jeremiah to know that it's a title deed of the earth. Okay, so it's literally the Lord coming and taking back what he rightfully paid for. And it's a, it's a title deed of the earth, but it's also a sealed indictment on the Christ-rejecting world. Because when you picture a scroll, he'll unloose a seal and a little bit of it unwinds, right? And then there's that next seal and you loose it and a little bit more unwinds. And I don't know about you guys, I cannot wait to see how big this scroll is that Jesus takes in heaven. It's, it, maybe it compasses the earth. I don't know. It'll be awesome. But chapter 8 opens up in verse 1. And when he, Jesus, had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. So he opens the, again the seventh seal. There's silence for 30 minutes. Now, how, how are they tracking time? First of all, I'm probably the only one in this room that has that question. Um, but how are they tracking time when they're in a space where there is no time? You know, they are, it's because they're looking down on the earth. We get to watch this all, as Chuck Missler used to say, from the mezzanine. That was my favorite comment he used to make uh, before he passed away. But we get to watch it from the mezzanine. You know, we get to be like in the opera, in the suites, in the boxes of a great sporting event. You're at the Super Bowl in the prime suite, getting the food and drinks and just getting to watch it down there. And you kind of look at the clock, you're like, oh, there's three minutes left in the game. But you're not in the game, right? But you just know what's going on. So he's still in control. Uh, he's still at work. We're still in heaven praising him. And it's awesome that we get to see him unlock this bit by bit. And it's all in his timing. And the other thing I want you to realize is that the Lord could just come in and just snap it all and be done, right? But in his long suffering, he is giving those that have rejected him a chance still. This is your warning call. It's like when you get the two-minute warning, right, in a basketball game, or you get the, the, the big siren before the bell, the five-minute bell when you're in middle school, right, before class started. It's like the warning bell is going off. People, pay attention. Time is almost up. I'm about to come back. I'm giving you a chance to get into my family before I come back and the chance is over. It's done. 
And in chapter 8, verse 2, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Okay, so again, you see that the authority is delegated. Who has the authority? Who is still in control? It is still Jesus. He has the authority. He's delegating these judgments to these seven angels. Okay, and they are going to go forward, and we're going to start next week and go through each of these trumpets one by one because it's going to get very heavy. You know, chapter 6, the seals were bad enough. The trumpets are even worse, and then the bowls are the worst yet. And so it's like a logarithmic scale. It exponentially continues to get worse on earth as it goes on. And you should be thankful. You should be praising him every day that you are not appointed to this. Um, If you go home and you read chapter 8 this week, there are demonic, satanic, fallen angel entities that are released on earth that do things that we have no capacity to even imagine. In the worst of the movies ever made, you can't even imagine what it's going to be like. And so just praise God that we are not appointed to this time. So the silence in heaven, this is straight modeled out of, the whole book of Revelation is modeled out of the book of Joshua. And we mentioned this months ago, but I wanted to point out the silence in heaven Okay, here in chapter 8 is even modeled after what Jesus does at Jericho in Joshua. So in the book of Joshua, you have Yehoshua, who's a variant form of Yeshua. So you have the name of Jesus even in the title of an Old Testament book, which is incredible. And and you should want to go read it just for that. But when you get to chapter 5, you see Jesus standing with a sword drawn, and Joshua comes up and challenges him, and it's like, hey, are you for us or for, your, or for our enemies? And he says, Nay, but as the captain of the Lord's hosts, I have come. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Joshua knows, okay, this is Jesus. I better obey. This guy has a sword drawn. He is serious. Because Jesus is leading the charge through the promised land, which starts at Jericho. Now, if you were a military commander and you were looking at the promised land, I doubt you as an earthly general would pick Jericho as the first battle. It was the capital of these, of these guys. It was the enemy. It was, it's like attacking you know, Washington, D.C. before you tried to invade Hawaii or something. You just wouldn't do that. You would pick somewhere different and try to get the outskirts and come in. Jesus is going for the jugular you know, right at the beginning. He's going for the, the kill shot. And Jericho literally means the house of the moon god. And so you, you still see that false god worship today as the crescent moon all over the world. But that's where it's rooted is in Jericho. And Jesus is leading that military campaign. It's a seven-year campaign of him going through the land against seven of an original ten nations. Just like in Revelation, there's ten heads, three are put down, seven remain. Same thing, ten kings, seven left. The Torah is totally ignored at Jericho. And the Sabbath is ignored, and the Levites are involved. They were never to go to battle, but they're involved at Jericho, which is amazing. They first send in two witnesses. Remember, they get Rahab saved, and then she hides them and puts them down the crimson cord. And even in that typology, you can see the two witnesses, and you can follow that crimson thread through the Bible. 
Uh, Rahab turns out to be one of the only women in the genealogy of Jesus, and she's a Gentile. You know, what is that doing there? It's amazing. Uh, but that's incredible that Rahab is in the genealogy of, of Jesus. Okay, there are seven trumpet events preceded by silence in heaven. It's in Joshua 6.10, and Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I bid you shout. Then shall ye shout. So here we have, before the trumpets started to blow, there was silence. And that's what we saw here in Revelation chapter 8. Before the trumpets start to blow, there is silence. And so it's, it's a model before Jesus goes to war in both cases against his enemy, which is pretty cool. The enemies in uh, Joshua confederate under a leader in Jerusalem whose name is Adonai Zedek, or the Lord of, of Righteousness, the false Lord of Righteousness, just like the Antichrist. They're ultimately defeated with hailstones and fire from heaven, signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And in Joshua, kings even hide themselves in caves and cry for rocks to fall on them, just like in Revelation uh, chapter 6. So what I wanted to give you a quick story about, and we're almost finished, I promise. Uh, Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. It sounds like silence to me. And in chapter 8, you see the people being silent, even in heaven. I mean, there's everything going on that you can imagine in heaven. There's cherubim around the throne. We are celebrating. We're giving crowns. We have thrones. We're sitting with Jesus. And yet in all of that glory, there's silence because Jesus is about to act. Um, in Psalm 46, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. Yes, he will. He's not right now. Uh, the heathen like to blaspheme our Lord, and they like to make fun of you, right? And say, hey, how can you even believe in this? What is going on? Uh, I will be exalted in the earth. He's not yet. But sit in silence to hear from the Lord. You know, I, it's amazing. In heaven, we get to sit in silence. Uh, Joshua, they sat in silence before he acted. Well, last year, the Lord gave me a series of visions, and I've never shared this publicly. Um, I will try to get through this and keep it together. I, I'm making no promises. Um, because when you meet Jesus face to face, you have no choice but to be silent. And to realize that he is king and ultimate authority. And uh, it started last May 25th in 2020. So a little over a year ago, uh, just to give you a point of reference, the church, we first met as a church on November the 29th, 2020. And 2020 was probably the most spiritually charged warfare I've ever been in in my life. And I now, looking back, know why. Uh, I know exactly why. The enemy did not want this church founded at all. It did not want a place where people can come and grow in God's word to like our mission statement, like Jesus gave us, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. So on May 25th, um, I was praying. We were praying a lot about a lot of things going on, but we were in some, I was in some intense spiritual warfare. And 
This is literally, after I came back from this vision, this is word for word what I wrote in my phone. So I'm just going to read it uh, because it's about all I can do. (laughs) Uh, So I was taken away in the spirit and it was completely silent. And I heard as it were, just to give you a visual, it was like I was somewhere and I could see the entire globe, okay? You were outside. Remember when Satan takes Jesus somewhere to a very high mountain where he could see all the kingdoms of the world? Okay, there's nowhere on planet Earth you can go to see all the kingdoms of the world. You could go to the highest mountain on Earth and you can't see it all. So clearly he's taken to a different dimension, just like we see Jesus in and out in the resurrected body coming in and out of heaven all the time. You see that with angels all through the Bible. Uh, Jacob's ladder from Genesis. Remember, he's laying on the mountain, and angels are ascending and descending to and from earth all the time. You call it, In mathematics, you would call that coming in and out of hyperspaces. That's what they're doing, in and out of different dimensions. So I was somewhere where I could see the entire world, and I, ha- I heard, as it were, a very loud trumpet. I mean, this thing was so deafening it was like, you know when the tornado sirens go off on Saturday at noon, high noon in Edmond, and there, there's one at the corner of our neighborhood, and you can hear it from inside of our house. It's like somebody chopped it down and put a string around your neck, and it's on your neck going off. That's how loud this thing was, okay? It was deafening, and it was a very high pitch. It would go like, it would raise up and then slow back down, and then raise up and slow back down, It sounded like a war cry. And what it reminded me of is if you've ever seen like old movies where they try to depict medieval warfare or uh, Vikings or I don't know, the Lord of the Rings or something, but when they blow the trumpet before going into battle, okay, that's what it reminded me of. Uh, And somehow I could tell that the sound was radiating around the globe. You could hear it from one end of the earth to the other. There was nowhere on earth you couldn't hear it. And that's what I think is going to happen in the rapture. See, when, when Jesus blows that trumpet, it's a call home to his ambassadors, but it's also a war cry against those that reject him. And there is nowhere on earth that you are not going to hear this trumpet sound. It is going to engulf the globe with a sound so great that everybody is going to know what just happened to New City Church. Uh, I'm trying to tune in online and nobody's there. <laughs> because, and that trumpet must be linked to it somewhere. We should go back and uh, listen to the rapture message to really figure out what's going on here. So it stopped for a few seconds and then began to ramp up again, and it lasted for a while. Now, I think, this is just a personal speculation, do not go home and say, man, Matt is crazy. What is he talking about? Uh, I think that when we hear that trumpet sound, you are going to hear your name called. I think that Jesus has a specific name, a new name. I know that biblically, that he has a white stone with a new name on it for you. And just like when he called Lazarus from the grave, he could have said, hey, come forward, but then everybody would have come. But he didn't. He said by name, Lazarus, come forth. And I think that you're going to hear your name. I think you could probably model that biblically. But uh, I heard it ramp up again. It lasted for a while, and then, and then I asked the Lord. It's like I couldn't see him at this point, but I could see the earth, and this, it sounded, the sound was just deafening. I said, Lord, are you coming to get us soon? Um, and immediately, 
I saw the outline of a figure, one that looked like the Son of Man, and he was sitting on a throne with his hands on the front of the armrest. So, I mean, picture these big, wide arms and like your hands kind of draped over the front of it, resting. That's how it looked. And he said to me, yes, don't worry, I'm coming soon. Then he stood up and I watched him. All I could see was this like silhouette of him. And he stood up and he turned around and just walked away back into this darkness. And then I just, I snapped awake. It was in the middle of the night one night on May 25th, 2020. And I remember sitting up in my bed going, wait, no, I didn't get to ask you when. And, <laughs> and I really wish he would have let me ask that question. I don't know what his answer would have been. He probably would have said, oh, you'll know when it's time. Uh, but I did not get to ask the question. But he did say, yes, don't worry, I'm coming soon. Now, he's, he has been saying he's coming soon ever since Acts 2, right? And soon to him could be 6,000 years. Soon to us is, hey, when is lunchtime? I'm getting real hungry. And so a different perspective of time. Uh, so that led, that was in May. The next month in June, uh, we were, again, it was a long month. I was praying a lot. There was a lot of spiritual warfare going on. I am telling you guys, the enemy did not want this church. It did not. It knew what God was calling us, the Freemans, and eight other families to do, and we were all praying about it, and the enemy did not want it to happen. And it was, it was the longest probably seven or eight months of my life in spiritual warfare. And, I, and I've been through a lot as a kid growing up and everything, but this was, it was intense. So again, I'm just going to read this. Jesus entering the room, June 16th. So I was declaring his name, Jesus' name in victory. I was listening to some praise music, uh, which I just turned off to start praying. And I was praying and in spiritual warfare, and I was immediately summoned to my knees. It was the feeling before he walks into the room is undeniable. You will never miss it if it happens to you. I promise you, no matter where you are, you will be driven to your knees because you know the king is about to step in. And it was like creation, everything going on, just shut down, just silence. Okay, and he... I was sewn to my knees, and I saw there were all of these. It was like I was lifted up for a second. I was looking down. I could see me and my family, and we were on our knees praising him. And around us, right next to us, was a ring of our enemies. Not fleshly enemies, because in Ephesians 6, right, we war not against flesh and blood, but against archons in the Greek, principalities, powers, darkness, wickedness in high places. That is the real enemy. It's not someone that's trying to belittle you in some way. They are charged by something else behind them. Your war is not against flesh and blood. And I could see all of these principalities and powers and demonic entities just around us, just yapping, right? Satan was a liar from the beginning, an accuser of the brethren. And all I kept hearing was, you can't do it. You'll never get out of this. Uh, you can't do this church thing. You're crazy to even think about it. Uh, this will never work. On and on and on the lies went. And it was just radiating, just loud and loud and loud and loud. The enemy is surrounding us. And all of a sudden, on the outside of the ring, I could see that same silhouette 
of the man sitting on the throne. But this time, I could see there was one thing in color, and it was the crown on his head. And it was just solid, streaking gold is the only way I could describe it. But it had all these different colors radiating off of it. And he was slowly walking through and from the outside. And as he got to the ring where everybody was, they knew the authority, and they shut up. <laughs> they stopped talking. And that, that ring just split like this. And he slowly started to walk in. And he was wearing a crown and white raiment, and he was carrying a double-edged sword and stepped in slowly between us and the enemies. And, and I'll never forget the, the picture because as someone that I, my entire life, I have looked to Jesus as being a conquering king, right? The one with a sword that fights for you, the one that goes to battle. Any battle that you can think of, he goes to it on your behalf. He's not an armchair quarterback that says, hey, Matt, I really want you to go out and do this thing. Uh, let me know how it turns out. You know, that's not Jesus. That's not the king we serve. Just like at Jericho, he's leading the battle. He is off his throne going forward and fighting in that battle with you. And that's what he was doing. So he had this double-edged sword, and he stepped in slowly between us and the enemies, and he thrust his sword into the ground. And I'll never forget, it was, like, it was almost like you took a, a block, a cinder block or something of concrete, and you had a sledgehammer, and you just hit it real hard, and it cracks. It was just like that, because he thrust his sword into the ground, and it just these cracks spread everywhere. And it made this sound like you were in a gigantic uh, chamber, this big room that was empty that echoed. And if you had like a gold scepter, and you just pounded it on the, on the ground, it would echo out there. That's kind of how it sounded. And so he thrust it into the ground, and it made a loud sound, almost like a king in a throne room, pounding his scepter onto a concrete floor. And as he stepped in, he was staring down the enemies, almost like, bring it on. You know, who, which of you are going to stick around and let this fight play out? was almost like it was. And they disbanded immediately. They started going back one by one from the outside in, just one by one, going back into the darkness. And... He bent down, he turned his gaze to me, and he bent down, and he said, Matthew, fear not, nor be dismayed. The world has no claim on you. And as I was in tears, he went on to say, I have a new name for you. And he had it in his hand, that white stone. Remember, it's that promise to the overcomer from Revelation 3, where he has a white stone with a new name on it for everyone that knows him. Okay, he sat down, he had in his hand that white stone, and I have a new name for you. Uh, the time is near, but not yet. And we both stood up, and he gave me the greatest hug I've ever had in my life. And I melted into his chest, and I cried out for him to direct our steps in the days ahead. And he said that he will in his timing. And then I came back. And it was over the course of those next six months in 2020, uh, we prayed about the church. We prayed about the name of the church. We went through probably, those of you that remember those, those days back in November of last year, we went through three or four names. And finally, on December the 9th of, of 2020 is when he came in in a series of visions, the, the third one in a series, and gave me the name of the church. And it was all based on Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, 
which is our forever home as the church, that new city that we have to look forward to. And he came in, and my point in sharing these with you is that before any of it happened, I had to be still and know that he is Lord. And just like in Revelation 8, there's silence in heaven before the trumpets blow, you need to sit still and get with God before something radical happens in your life. Uh, there's, there's a principle there of being still and knowing that he is Lord. A lot of times we try to solve things on our own accord, and we try to do things in our own power. But if you'll just be still and know that he's God, it all works out, I promise you. And uh, this week in Colorado, we got to be still, and, or two weeks ago, be still and know that he's God. And we've been praying for a long time for the logo for the church, and he gave it to me piece by piece over about three nights. I haven't shared it to anyone yet. Uh, Mason's asked me like 18 times. He's not going to see it until he, it's on a t-shirt somewhere. But it's going to be great. You guys will love it, I promise. So a call to action. We'll close with this. Get alone with the Lord and seek to hear from him. Secondly, who do you know that needs Jesus? You know, we're going to start unpacking next week from verse 3 on in chapter 8 and continue this study verse by verse and go through these trumpets. But who do you know that needs the Lord? What conversation have you been putting off that cannot wait any longer? You know, think about a time that you were saved. You know, think about a time before you were saved. You know, what if Jesus had come back for his bride before you were saved? Just think about that. In his long suffering, he waited until you were a member of the church. And had it happened before that, you would have had to survive that period that Jesus refers to as the great tribulation and tried to come to know him during that time. So look for opportunities to share Jesus. That is what we are to do. That's what this church is all about, to foster. Foster is to bring in something and to love it and to show it tending to, right? To foster, strengthen by only the word of God, by pouring the word of God and the depth of God's word in people's lives. And by that, through inertia, it grows because other Christians will be attracted to your spiritual growth. When all of a sudden you're studying the Bible and getting things that they've never heard in church before, they're going to want to come know what's going on. And so it's to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. So look for opportunities to share him. Pray for the Holy Spirit to stir and open those opportunities. If you've never prayed for that, pray for it. You will get an opportunity that you were not expecting. I promise. It'll be at lunch. It'll be something. But be sensitive to those around you and be an, be an active member of the body of Christ. So if you do not know Jesus, if you're watching this online, look, it's simple. You can be a member of the body of Christ today. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You can make sure you've got a one-way ticket. All it takes is submission. Do not flee that accountability. You can have a relationship with him and anything that you've been trying to carry, you can cast at his feet, just like Jesus said in Matthew, right? My burden is easy. My, yoke is, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And so you can do that. In Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so whatever you have done in your life, whatever you have done, even after you're saved, 
it can all be turned to white. It just takes submission to him. That's all it is. That's what it's about. So if you know someone, if you're out there, if you need prayer, if you need to know about what it means to become a disciple of the Lord, then reach out to us. And with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time. God, thank you for tailoring and directing this message. God, I just pray that as we continue in Revelation in chapter 8, verses 3 and on, that, Lord, we keep in mind who has the authority, who delegates the authority, and where we are during this time. I thank you for that promise that we are kept out of this very time of trouble that shall come upon the whole world. So, Lord, thank you for your promise. Thank you for the salvation. Lord, we pray for all of those families that are out there traveling that couldn't be here this morning. We pray that you would be with them. Give us a great week ahead and let us find opportunities and boldness to share you with those around us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, we pray all of these things. Amen.